Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Julian Rice. Julian is the co-founder of Brave Business, a sustainability and innovation consultancy, but also co-founder of two startups, Brave Brews and Food Facts. So he's a real slasher. During this conversation, we will learn more about all his activities, but also about his personal journey to illustrate the revolution of work and how paternity can radically change one's outlook on career and success. Hi, Julian. Welcome. Hello. It's lovely to be here with you, Sonia. This podcast is called Sweden in Transition. So what do you think is changing or needs to change right now? Well, the obvious thing that's happening uh, this year is uh, COVID-19 and that's affected us all. It's the health aspect of COVID, but it's shifting so many different aspects of our life. And the big question for me is, is it going to make us more conscious? Are we going to be able to do these kind of Green New Deals and uh, transition towards a more green recovery? And it's a question mark. We're all relieved by the election results in America But politically, it's really difficult to push through. There are still a lot of forces out there that are resisting that change. But now's our chance. Because we've seen that with a pandemic, how quickly we can adapt, how quickly we can change, how quickly businesses can completely transform their business model from huge companies that have had to adapt, whether it's spirits companies that have change their factories to be able to produce alcohol gels to really small businesses like my local butcher that's had to learn how to do Facebook campaigns or catering companies that have started to do food delivery. We can change. We've proven that. It's that sense of urgency that the pandemic's created that's enabled us to change quickly. And I really hope that we'll have that sense of urgency with a green recovery as well. I've read an article from you called Confession of a Corporate Junkie. Can you talk us through your uh, professional journey? Because you, you've learned change yeah. uh, in your life. So. Yeah. My career started in what I would call a very typical kind of corporate career. Got lots of promotions, worked internationally at L'Oreal working in London, then in Paris, head office. And it's a constant kind of ego boost, these promotions, that next level. There's always one more level, one more job, one more international opportunity. And then uh, I fell in love with a Swede and uh, moved to Sweden. And then I was on my way to move to Thailand to head up the marketing division of Asia. Just before I was going to take that role, I uh, took four months paternity leave. And that kind of changed my outlook. That changed things. And obviously, I'm really fortunate living in Sweden that it's quite common for fathers to take paternity leave. It's very rare in, I'd say, 99% of the world's countries. But I totally fell in love with my daughter and uh, realized I probably didn't want to be that corporate dad flying around the world, having a brilliant corporate life, but never seeing his family. So I uh, said no to the job in Thailand after having accepted it and almost signed a, a contract for a flat uh, there, which wasn't super popular, but the company was really understanding. So I got another job here and then it was my daughter having health issues that really kind of made me reevaluate and think that maybe 
the time I'm spending away from my family, I should be spending on things I really care about and I want to be doing, rather than just going with the flow in a corporate career just for my ego. So I changed and uh, became a consultant, first of all in an agency, but uh, hated that. And uh, after 12 months, went independent. Six years ago, I started my own kind of independent consultancy. So the paternity leave was at the beginning of the change. What do you think of it? Uh, Sweden is really advanced. For your listeners that aren't living in Sweden, you essentially pay high taxes as a Swedish citizen. But the kind of deal is you get a lot of benefits back. Uh, and one of those benefits is 480 working days that are paid by the government at 80% of your salary as parental leave. The standard is that it's split 50-50 between the mum and the dad. So there are certain days that are reserved for each parent and you can swap days, etc. So there's some flexibility in it. I've not only appreciated it, but really it's kind of changed me as a person. To spend time with your children at that age is just totally uh, precious and it's not a time you're ever going to get back so uh, I highly recommend uh, not that everyone should move to Sweden but that uh, governments around the world should take it seriously so it's not just the the two weeks when your child's born but really being their main carer as a father is something really special. When it comes to can Sweden do something more I think it's beyond just the parental leave kind of part of the upbringing, but also you want to get parents back into work as quickly as possible. Because I've seen mums that I worked with at L'Oreal, brilliant women, like some of the smartest women I've ever worked with. As soon as they had two children, they couldn't afford to keep working in the UK because the cost of daycare is so high that you end up losing money by having children in daycare versus working. So... I think it's a combination of parental leave with heavily subsidized daycare in Sweden, which makes the system work. And this paternity leave, does it change the way the couple work at home from your experience, but from what you see around you? I would say, yeah, it's more egalitarian in Sweden. Men are expected to do chores. It's not embarrassing to do laundry and uh, washing, etc., Although in my household, I'm not allowed to do laundry, having uh, washed my wife's clothes at the wrong temperature, uh, <laughs> etc. So it's more a functional reason than a cultural reason. So, yeah, I, I think it, having spent time cleaning uh, after a child, changing nappies at a really young age, you actually appreciate all the things that your wife did while you had a baby at home in a way that you wouldn't if you were just going to work every day. So I think it kind of automatically uh, creates a certain egalitarianism. In the intro, I described you as uh, doing many things, being co-founder of uh, the consultancy, but also startups. How do you define yourself now? In the article I was mentioning, you talked about uh, employment. I mentioned the word slasher. I saw that word uh, slasher and uh, I had to look it up actually. <laughs> I didn't know what it was, but it's definitely the right word for me. One of the benefits of being independent is flexibility. Initially, I thought it was all about being able to earn more money and have more control. 
but I've realized over time that it's that flexibility and being able to focus your time on the things you want to focus on. And so slasher, I would say, is the right description. I definitely am an employee. I'm an entrepreneur, you could say. So I think a slasher is a good description. And for the other people that didn't know what it was, it comes from those descriptions on LinkedIn where you have a slash between each of your titles. So a slasher could be an illustrator slash consultant slash uh, butcher. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, an employee, what is it? Yeah, so I'm a member of an organization called Up There Everywhere, which is a cloud-based agency. And the founder of that uh, cloud-based agency wrote a book called Eployment, which is all about how digital tools enable us to work remotely and seamlessly in the cloud. Some of the projects I do, I'll be working with people in New York, China, Dubai, uh, all on the same Skype calls and uh, everyone can do 24-7 kind of deliverables because you could work on something and then hand it over to someone working in California who hands it back over to you in the morning. So employment is really the way that cloud-based digital tools have enabled us to work remotely together seamlessly. I wanted to talk with you about the future of work. I don't know if you've read David Graeber. I have. Multi-jobs. Yeah. There is a lot of discussion around purpose and how the new generation wants to find purpose at work. Uh, so David Graeber, I think he's a professor at London School of Economics, uh, but he, he wrote this book, Bullshit Jobs, where he did research and found out that I think 86% of people are totally disengaged with their jobs. And he categorized these sort of jobs in flunky jobs, jobs that kind of people don't really care about. It's nothing meaningful or productive. It's not creating any value. I'll be honest. That's a feeling I've had when I was employed in big corporations. Sometimes you question, why am I doing this job? What's the point of this? Uh, And you have to balance that, of course, with the safety of being employed. But I think it's about integrity, being kind of true to yourself about what is it you really want to do with your life. And like you talked about Generation Z or uh, millennials who claim to all be so purpose-driven, they're expecting jobs to be meaningful. So I think Now is the time for independent working, working out what you want to do and trying to find a way to do it. And it doesn't mean you have to throw everything out and immediately commit 100% to it, but start experimenting, start testing ways to push for that uh, career that you've always wanted or startup business that you've wanted to, to create. Because job automation is coming in most industries. I've always felt as a sort of marketeer. At what age do I become kind of a dinosaur? At what age do I become irrelevant? So uh, I think the speed of change in the industry is also so quick that you really need to kind of find your find your niche. But it's also about mental well-being. When I started my consultancy, that felt like being in permanent psychotherapy, constantly wondering, why am I doing this? Why am I not satisfied with the kind of safe nine-to-five job. It's tough to be pitching for work. It's tough to be marketing yourself and being clear about what you have to offer. It's difficult, but asking yourself those questions, I would say, is healthy. 
asking yourself what is it you want to spend your time doing that's a healthy question to ask even if it's difficult to answer but it's also about tools and connectivity it's really easy now to work remotely now now we're sitting in Klustet the co-working space where you work here one day a week you can work from home you can I know you work even in a garden some days a week. I think you're a great example of uh, of this as well. I also think there's a big gap in the market between really skilled people, needs for solutions. Big consultancy firms aren't always the answer. You worked in uh, Paris in the UK. You work with people all around the world. We often speak about how work-life balance and quality of life at work in Sweden is really great. Tell us what's the Swedish style at work. There's definitely a sort of unquestionable rule about work-life balance. It's totally okay to go home and pick up your kids at four. There's a kind of collective responsibility that you'll get the work done in the evening if you need to, but you prioritize family and work-life balance. One thing that's really interesting culturally is this obsession with consensus. I've worked in companies that call themselves flat. The whole corporate culture in Sweden is very flat, which means everyone needs to be involved in decision-taking, which in some ways is positive, in some ways is extremely frustrating. It makes for very slow decisions and very diluted decisions because you can't always get a consensus. You water down what the best solution might be to make sure everyone's on board. It's an innate part of the culture. There's uh, an expression in Swedish, Jantes lag, that you're not meant to stand out from society. You're not meant to stand out and show off. That's probably a good thing when you talk about it, comparing yourself to neighbors or in schools. Or, But when it comes to corporate leadership, it's not always the most efficient way of running a company. But still, it seems like there is a leadership here. Innovation is thriving. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the most successful startups mm -hmm. and the speed. When there is a decision that is made mm -hmm. in terms of climate action, for example, a lot of things are progressing faster than anywhere else. Yeah. So the flip side of flat organizations is the absence of bureaucracy. So starting a company in Sweden is just so quick and easy. You don't have huge amounts of admin and paperwork, bureaucrats kind of in the way. So I think you're right that once a decision has been taken, things are pushed through really quickly. So it's that balance of it's flat. So there aren't layers and layers of people kind of complicating things. But the actual decision taking in big corporations, I think, is difficult. Small companies can run really, really fast in Sweden and... There's a lot of startups and a really exciting speed of change. And whether it's food tech or uh, digital startups, there's a huge amount of things happening. Big corporations, I think, move quite slowly because it's hard to change and shift a business model when you have a culture of consensus. Interesting. So let's move on to uh, all your activities. Maybe we should start with Brave Business. Sure. So uh, Brave Business, I run with a partner, Niklas uh, Tunebro, and we're a consultancy that helps companies and NGOs to bridge the gap between short-term commercial actions and long-term sustainable ambitions. There's a, a famous model called the growth gap, 
if you plot a line between your ambitious targets that you're telling your shareholders you're going to reach versus the progress of business as usual, that gap over time gets bigger and bigger. So you have to innovate, you have to change. But we also see that there's an impact gap. Everyone's got these crazy high ambitions uh, for uh, what they're going to manage to do by 2030, what they're going to manage to do by 2050. But the reality is business as usual isn't changing fast enough. So we help to bridge that gap by enabling them with uh, innovation capabilities. So how do you help an organization to be profitable short-term, grow medium-term, but transform long-term? But that's a constant balancing act. We work in different horizons and help companies to work in different ways on different horizons in parallel. I can give an example of what I mean by these horizons. With Adidas, back in 2015, they made a a sort of big statement about ocean plastic being a, a big challenge, and they basically make plastic shoes. Their CEO was going to present at a UN event, just in a really kind of agile, quick, prototype way, they produced 7,000 shoes, partnering with a a company called Parley for the Oceans, that's an activist organisation that collects plastic from, from the oceans. Basically as a kind of demonstration of what they could do, fun Horizon 3 way of prototyping, what could we be doing? And those shoes, 7,000 shoes, sold out instantly. So then they thought, maybe we're onto something. So two years later, 2017, they produced a million shoes with those plastic from Parley for the Ocean. They created Run for the Oceans, a way to get their consumers involved and excited by it. That's Horizon 2, so the how can we grow? How can we create uh, this as a, as a future kind of business area? And then in 2019, it was really kind of integrated into the main business. I think it was 11 million shoes with Parley for the Oceans plastic, each costing $200. So it's a $2 billion business. And it's helped them to really accelerate their sustainability ambitions so that uh, by 2024, all of their um, shoes were going to be made with recycled plastic. So it's an illustration of how you need to be working on different horizons and how as time progresses, the things that you're doing on Horizon 3, you want to bring them into Horizon 2 and then Horizon 1, obviously, when it's kind of part of your daily business. On your website, you mentioned those companies that are talkers and walkers. Can you talk us through that? Sure. There are a lot of companies that talk a lot about the great things they're doing in CSR. But if you actually look at the impact of their business, some of those initiatives are really not making an impact. And there are some companies that are walkers doing a lot of great things, but not really talking about it or not using it as a way to reposition their brand or to to attract new customers. So they're missing out on an opportunity. You could call it uh, greenwashing and green hushing. Then there are a few companies that are doing both where they've really thought about what is the impact of our business? What is it that our brand stands for? And what are the sustainability initiatives or big missions or purpose that we could be driving that can drive our brand forwards? So really aligning 
your brand, your sustainability ambitions, and how you make money is the only way to be able to talk and walk and do both at the same time. What do you tell companies that believe that sustainability and profit are not compatible? That they're wrong. <laughs> I think there are really clear business reasons to invest in sustainability. I think there's green efficiency. So obviously you can save on energy, on water, on electricity costs. But you can also save on recruitment. When you know that uh, 67% of people would prefer to work for a company that's doing good, you can actually attract more employees and probably uh, more interesting employees. You can save on marketing. There's lots of examples of campaigns that went viral. In the UK, there's a frozen goods company called Iceland that did an ad, an animated film with Greenpeace, all about how they're removing palm oil from their um, own products. And it went so viral. It, that's by far the most seen Iceland ad that's ever been for the lowest possible cost. Then there's the, the kind of responsibility side of things. You reduce risk of media scandals. If you think of Volkswagen, you reduce supply risks because you actually take accountability of your supply chain, like Tony's Chocolate Only. Uh, you res reduce regulatory risks, like BP having massive fines. But it's also the, the other sides of business, which is growth and leadership and being able to do business model innovation like Adidas or uh, launching newsworthy products or uh, attracting new customer segments. There's so many opportunities with investing in sustainability as part of your business model, not a separate entity where you do lots of initiatives to minimize damage. You use an approach at uh, Brave Business. You call it human-centric approach. Can you present it? So uh, we talk about different elements of how you transform your business. And each of these elements actually has parallels to us as humans and different organs that we use for life. And the first is actually heart. So what is the purpose that we can have as a business that we can really credibly drive Then the brain aspect is how can we do that in a really credible way financially that matches to our operations and how quickly can we do it? Then comes the muscles or the arms. We want to enable people. So we, it's about engaging with your employees, getting them involved, getting them on board, getting them excited about the mission, recruiting the right people that really believe in that purpose. And finally, the voice, being able to communicate about it, that that becomes the heart of what you stand for and how you talk. You operate in Sweden mainly. Sweden is known to be uh, advanced on sustainability. Do you think that's true? Definitely, Sweden has a much higher conscience and awareness of sustainability issues. But we're not always living the way we preach. Up until COVID, people were still kind of going on holiday to Thailand. It's easy to preach, but sometimes we should lead by example. And I think there are a lot of great examples when it comes to, to startups. But I think on an individual level and a people level, Swedes think they're much more conscious than they are. 
But why is it that there is this strong consciousness? I think there's a sense of society and collective responsibility in Sweden. And I think we've seen the best of that with COVID. We didn't initially, at least. Who knows if it was the right strategy, we'll probably know in 10 years. But initially, the reason there wasn't a need for a legal lockdown was this sense of we have a collective responsibility. We as a society rely on each other, trust each other. There's a sense of trust in society and in governmental organizations that is absent in France or UK or USA. And I think that gives people a sense of responsibility when it comes to sustainability as well. How do you explain it? Is it the political history? Is it the weather? <laughs> I wonder if the weather is a factor. If we didn't have collective agreement that we'd help each other in the middle of winter, uh, back when we were cave dwellers, that we would have died here. Maybe it's part of the, the Viking uh, kind of culture. There's this word lagom, which means not too much, not too little. But it also comes from the idea of uh, you had your Viking horn of beer that you would pass around or the whole uh, gang, log om, so you'd pass it around the whole uh, log, which means team in Swedish. And, and it's kind of symbolic of Swedish society that we, we rely on each other. We also want to know more about your new exciting ventures. Creme beer is the first one. I can tell you about Crumbs Beer, but I can also do more than that, which is to actually open a Crumbs Beer for you to taste yeah. it. <laughs> Hopefully you can hear some exciting sound effects. <laughs> so here you go, Sonia. Thank you. And uh, just so we're clear, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, but the, I'm serving the alcohol-free version so that... Uh, We don't have any complaints on your podcast. It's fine. It's going to be dark at three. So I think it's perfect time. <laughs> exactly. for. <laughs> so Crumbs Beer is a project that we started in the spring. Food waste. We read a report last year about bread waste in particular. That 80,000 tons of bread is wasted in Sweden every year. Uh, so that's more than 200 tons a day. It's more than four loaves of bread every second, all year, every year. There's lots of reasons for it, big kind of systematic issues, like a bread return system that creates a lot of waste, far too much choice in stores. I did a quick count and counted 260 different types of bread in an average-sized store, which makes it very hard to forecast as well as stores not being able to reduce prices on bread for complicated reasons. And so we wanted to create something more valuable out of that waste. So we started a beer company because you can make delicious beer from bread waste. More than that, we didn't want to transport bread waste around the country. So we wanted to create a new system for circular economy around bread waste. So... We don't want to produce bread beer nationally. We want to create a national brand, but we want to always produce it locally. So we collaborate with different craft brewers to provide them with bread waste for them to produce beer. So we've made beer with Vendebrigli. We've created a Lofi Lager, uh, which we launched in the summer. 
and it's now in 50 stores around Stockholm and it, just around the corner in our first bar, which we're really excited about, although the, the timing couldn't be much worse. We've just signed a new brewery, so we'll be working with a, a brewery north of Stockholm. Do you have opportunities to reduce waste from the start? Yeah, I just want to introduce a term which uh, Niklas and I use a lot, which is practivism. We think activism is really important. Greta Thunberg is fantastic. We need people to feel passionately that the world has to change. But then when it comes to the how, how do you change it? And system change is really difficult. And we come from a commercial background, so we believe that we're credible in changing it from the inside. So what we're doing on a really small scale is to constantly be testing, to be able to systemize it. And we're having discussions with um, category directors uh, that are really keen to test an alternative system. No one wants huge amounts of waste. We've created this linear food model that's purely based on logistics, but If we could create more valuable products out of it, then everyone would love to. So, like you say, we need to massively reduce the waste at source. So, we're planning on launching a manifesto. I haven't actually revealed this to anyone publicly yet, so it's very exciting to be able to tell you. Uh, in the spring, where we will be working with a restaurant expert on um, food waste, a uh, retail expert on food waste, and a baker expert on food waste to create guidelines and rules of what are the steps you should be taking. So it might be initially to work with Why Waste, which is an organization that helps companies to forecast better in store so that they don't actually create waste. It might be cancelling your bread return system because we know that system creates a lot of waste. It might be re-looking at the portfolio of bread, the assortment, reducing the amount of choice. It might be switching the product mix, so having more bread that's baked in store and less packaged bread. Although the packaged bread lasts longer at home, today there's a system where they can't reduce prices. So it makes it very hard to um, get rid of products just before they're, um, they're going off, as it were. And then there will always be leftovers. Of those leftovers, you then need a guidelines on what are the best things to do. Fortunately, there's a new report that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago from Burros Högskola that measured the CO2 impact of what you can do with bread waste. They showed that producing beer and feeding animals is better from a CO2 perspective than incinerating or creating biofuel. So when you have that research that's actually proving it and you can also create commercial models that are interesting for stores then I think we're going to start to create alternative models and, and build some momentum. Coming back to the manifesto, we want to create guidelines on what people should do that are based on, on science, then reducing at source is always what we should be focusing on. But we then want stores, bakeries, restaurants, bread manufacturers and consumers to sign up so that we can then create some 
pressure to maybe have regulations on food waste. Because that's the big difference when I compare between France and Sweden. In France, there is this new law that forbids retailers to throw away food and they need mm -hmm. to donate it. I hosted a webinar for FIBA, Federation for European Food Banks. There's at the same time still a, a big need to feed hungry people, people that are in uh, food poverty, uh, even in Sweden. You, you need to have that hierarchy of what are your first point of call, second point of call, third point of call, so that you never end up just incinerating or uh, only doing biofuel. And you have this other startup, yes. uh, Food Facts. So we all want to make better food choices, whether that's for health, whether it's for uh, kind of lower carbon emissions or even for society with fair trade, etc. But actually... It's very hard to compare, for example, is it better CO2-wise to eat local chicken or uh, processed soy? And of course, there are lots of different factors. It's not just CO2, which is important. And so Food Facts is a company that was created to enable people to make informed food choices. So we combine industry standard product data that exists um, in uh, a system called GS1. We combine that data with a smart ingredient list analysis, which we've developed. And we then combine that with external qualitative information sources, like Livsmedelsverket, which is the uh, Swedish equivalent of FDA, or the, yeah, the food um, authority or information from NGOs like CLAV or Fairtrade to actually inform consumers on what these certifications mean. We can also create a consumer app that helps them to compare products based on their values. We're not trying to say green light, red light, yellow light, this one's better than that one. But based on if you think it's really important that farmers have a decent income and you don't want to use too much water because that's a really important issue for you, you can then select those things and compare products based on those criteria. So we want to make product information much more transparent and accessible. Makes me think of Yuka. Yeah, I've seen it in France. You can't download the app in Sweden, but it's similar. They have a lot of health focus. And They are green, red lights. Yeah, and they're doing a lot of green, red light. We did a design sprint, which is a way to, in just five days, go from an idea to a tested prototype mm -hmm. of the app. And what we saw was people really liked the ability to compare products, but everyone had slightly different criteria of what they thought was important. And what they thought was really valuable was personalization. So rather than us telling them what a good product is, they can decide for themselves what their values are. Mm -hmm. And it could be high fiber uh, or high protein, or it could be fair trade and low water usage. But whatever values you have, today it's very difficult for you to compare products. Great. And when do you think that could be so available? We're in discussions with some e-retailers to help them to uh, enhance their product descriptions and their retail experience. When it comes to the app, it's probably next year, realistically. We're starting and hopefully we'll have a prototype by Christmas. You can get in touch if you want to be part of user testing. Oh, yeah. That's very exciting. 
I like to ask always the same question. If you have any inspiring quotes mm. to share. Yes, I have one that I love and it's appropriate. I'm half French. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, and you're French, Sonia. It's from uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. And his quote is, we do not inherit the world from our parents. We borrow it from our children. If everyone believed that, so many political choices, so many commercial choices would be different. Every incentive would be there to take sustainability and, and climate change seriously. A book that has been decisive. I have two books, if that's okay. One is around the food system, which anyone who's interested in food should read. It's called Stuffed and Starved by Raj Patel. It's extremely depressing, but extremely informative. Really going into the history, the economics of the food system. And then the other one is a book about innovation and how you can innovate quickly, which no one will have heard of here, but uh, it's called That Shit Will Never Sell by a man called David Gluckman. <laughs> Exciting books and very funny names. Thanks for your time, Julian. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's been really fun to talk to you. And lovely to be here. Thanks a lot to Julian Rice for this conversation and thank you all for listening. If you like this episode, please put some stars on your podcast app, share it on your favorite social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and send me a message with a comment or an idea for our next guest. Liersch!